Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to the Detroit Buy, Hold, Invest podcast. We're going to get right into it today. I'm your host, David Rabior, Detroit Buy, Hold, Invest, where we make dreams financially come true to help people build wealth over time. Again, Motor City, there's no pity here. Everybody knows what they're doing until they don't. Nobody knows what they're doing until they do. Anyway, Dave Rabior, Clyde Realty, Detroit Buy, Hold, Invest. You can visit my website, www.detroitbuyholdinvest.com. You can find me on all forms of social media. Just go in there, type in Detroit Buy, Hold, Invest, and up pops me and my ugly face and all that good stuff. Some see, some people say I got a face for radio. Some people say I got a face for TV. And some people say I got a face for slapping. I guess it depends on who it is, but let's jump into it. Today, I want to do a show called Stop, Think, Be Realistic. And I feel like a lot of the people that listen to my show, and and thank you for that. We've had over 2,000 listens since I dropped this podcast. It's only been like three weeks, and I've had a lot of great feedback. I've learned a lot of things, and I've met a lot of great investors that you know. I feel like we've developed some sort of a personal connection based on the things I do um, and, and the way I talk and the things that I say that I really truly mean from the heart. And I appreciate all of you guys for listening. And it seems like this is doing well and, and we'll see where it goes. But mostly this is for like, you know, an informative purpose. And I want to utilize this as a forum for people to ask questions. And a lot of people are doing that. They're messaging me on Facebook and they're hitting me up on my Gmail account and stuff like that. And they're asking me to do certain things. But what I realize is like, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that investors that listen to this show are a little bit more advanced. And, and, you know, sometimes I don't realize there's a lot of newbie, you know, investors that do have financial means and they are in a position where they can invest and they're reaching out and, and they want to, and they're listening to my show. And I feel like I, I missed a couple of steps. And, and one thing I want to focus on today is like beyond all of the, who are you and what do you want to do? And what, what, what do you want your life to be? All that stuff. I want you know, people to like stop and be realistic about like, what, what are you investing for? And and you can't look at these rental properties with a mentality of anything different than what you would do with like your 401k or a Roth IRA or something like that. You know, a lot of people, they're looking for instant gratification. And in most cases, you can achieve um, a great passive income return on these investments when you buy them. I mean, you're talking about houses for 75,000, 80,000, 90,000, and they're renting for, um, you know, 1300. And, and if you're getting duplexes, I mean, you could be all in on a duplex for a hundred to 130,000 and, and real, like realistically on a, like, let's say a duplex with three bedrooms times two units, you know, three bed, one bath, um, section eight pays, Twelve, thirteen hundred dollars for that. So, on an investment of one hundred thirty thousand, it is realistic that you could get a duplex, and you absolutely could gross, you know, twenty four hundred bucks or twenty two hundred bucks, and you know, then you got fees and everything. But if you look at the mortgage payment on one hundred thirty thousand with taxes, insurance, and all that included, I mean, there's just absolutely no way that if you know how to operate or you go to a property manager and and, and you you lay out that you're looking to, you know, hold these properties and make them rental certified with C of C. And, and I'll get into that uh, before I get into the main topic of the show. But if you go to a property management company or you know how to operate and you make sure that your houses are safe and they're clean and they look aesthetically good and you make it attractive to a potential tenant, 
you know, you're ultimately going to draw in a tenant that you can qualify based on, even if they're a section eight, they have to have jobs, um, for you to rent to them. And in most cases they do. I mean, just because they're on section eight doesn't mean that you don't have utility bills. You have DTE bills, they have internet bills, they have gas bills, they have all kinds of bills. And a lot of times in Detroit, we have horrible public transportation and people need cars, especially if they have jobs. So, you know, they're going to have car payments or they're at least going to have insurance payments and they got to pay for gas money and cell phone and all that stuff. So when you're going to rent to somebody just because they're on section eight, you can't assume that they don't have any income and and they have no job. If they do, you're doing a horrible job trying to select tenants to put in your place. And you're ultimately going to end up with a an eviction situation because you're putting a tenant in there that can't pay the bill. So let's be realistic a little bit about how to operate as a landlord and what you need to do and what your expectations should be. And what I really want to start off with is like looking at rentals for what they are. You know, you can't look at these rentals. Um, but let me get into this first. In Detroit, here's a secret that people who aren't interested in your success are going to do. They're going to take your phone call. Or they're going to take your email and they're going to say, hey, yeah, I can get you cheap houses. And yeah, they're going to rent high and and yeah, I'll, I'll put you in front of good ones and stuff. And then they're going to entice you to get on an MLS strip, which is going to flood you with all this crap that you don't even care about. You know, houses that are retail, houses that are abandoned, whatever. You're looking for turnkey rentals. You're either going to buy them, fix them and put tenants in. Or you're going to buy them and you're going to have tenants already in them, whether you're improving the rent or you're buying them at, you know, top dollar so that you can get a fully operating and and certified. But we have this thing in Detroit, like any other municipality called certificate of compliance. And it's essentially the rental inspection that you have to go through in order for you to legally hold property. Okay. And in the suburbs, you have to just get a rental inspection. So they send a guy out and he's looking for health and safety. He wants to make sure the house is conforming with the neighborhood and it has smoke detectors and carbon dioxide detectors and handrails and there's no trip hazards and there's not peeling and chipping paint and you don't have the crappy house on the street and they want everything to look good. Even if you're renting, they want the house to look like a homeowner lives there. I mean, it doesn't have to be as beautiful or whatever, but it's still got to look good. And and the city's not going to allow you to operate as a landlord and collect rent without having a house that fits in with the street and doesn't look like a piece of crap. And you have to make sure that you personally feel that you want to have a good property and you have to also make sure that your property manager knows that you're not going to tolerate your house going to crap, whether it be from your tenant doing it or from them just generally not maintaining or recommending maintenance when you need to. So you have to be ready at all times to be able to put a few bucks in the house if it needs it. And you're doing that because essentially, and this is where I'm going with it after I finish my Uh, you know, what I'm trying to say with the certificate of compliance in Detroit, the only difference between the suburbs and other neighborhoods is, you know, they have one rental inspection in the city of Detroit. They have a rental inspection, or you're going to have a section eight inspection that runs concurrently with that rental inspection that you can use for the purpose of getting your certificate of compliance. And then you also have to get what they call a lead inspection, the lead inspection that they do. They essentially come into your house And it takes a couple of hours from the do. And they have this little handheld device that looks kind of like a breathalyzer. Um, Picture that little handheld device with the straw. And it has this device with it has a a probe that sticks out like that straw and a breathalyzer. And they come in the house and they they touch all the walls around the windows and they touch the ceilings and they touch the floors. And every time they touch it, that thing picks up a reading. And there's a minimum threshold of lead um, that you trace amounts of lead that you have to meet. And the reason for that is, you know, in Detroit, when the houses are built in 1920 or 1940 and they have wooden windows inside of those wooden windows, there's lead weights that hold that window up. So when you lift up the window, it doesn't fall down and smash your hands. 
or your fingertips or whatever. And inside of the track of that window, that lead weight goes up and down. And when it does, it rubs and it makes dust. And that lead dust gets all over the floor and it gets all over the window ledge. And you don't necessarily know that. But little kids crawl around with their hands and they pick up toys and they stick their hands in their mouth. And people were having a lot of problems with kids getting lead poisoning because of poorly maintained and non-updated homes in the city of Detroit. So they decided to do that at first. What we were told was, you know, for the health and safety, but this has turned into a money grab for the city of Detroit. Like every other city has a, a method of inspection that, you know, unrealistic inspectors ask you to make improvements that don't make any sense. And sometimes there's really no way to fight them and it's frustrating, but this is the way that it has to be done. So you can have a section eight inspection or you can have a rental inspection and then you have this lead inspection. And then after that, you turn in all that paperwork and they do a check on you to make sure you don't have excessive amounts of tickets with the city for blight and whatnot. And once you clear all that, they issue a certificate of compliance and that's good for three years. And then you don't have to worry about doing it again for three years. If you have a Section 8 tenant, then you still have to get your your yearly Section 8 inspection, and you still have to keep the house up, and you still have to make sure that all the safety items are there. And if you have a tenant that loves taking smoke detectors down, it's going to be frustrating, but you have to do it. And these are the things that you need to do. And it forces you, one, to provide a safe environment for your tenant, whether they respect it or not. Two, it helps you if you ever have to evict and you go into court and they ask you, are you compliant with all of the laws? And you say, yes, I am. That doesn't give the tenant leverage to say that you're a bad landlord or whatnot because they try to do that. And then, you know, post COVID, they were saying, hey, we won't even let you evict a tenant if you don't have CFC. That kind of faded because they can't force a landlord to not regain legal possession. But that's for another day. OK, so. You have to first be ready to do all of these things, which leads me to, you know, stop and think and be realistic, which is the topic of the show. You know, a lot of people, they call me up and they say, hey, look, I want to buy these houses and I want to put tenants in there for Section 8 for the most money. And I want to make five, six hundred dollars in passive income for every single house and whatever. And and whether whether or whether not, you know, that's that's an attainable goal. Like you're coming in and saying, hey, I want to buy rentals and make a whole bunch of cash and, you know start living off it, you know, within the next year. Like, could you do that? Yeah, it's possible, but you have to have like 15, 20, 30 properties for that to even be realistic. So when you're starting off and you're buying your first five or 10, your mentality can't be, let's run into a city I'm not from, buy a whole bunch of stuff and then hope that it all goes well and I'm put tenants in and then I'm going to just sit in my underwear all day, watch TV and eat Cheetos and, you know, collect money off people and, and I don't have to work no more. That's not what this is for. And if that's the mentality that you have and people are telling you that it works, they're lying to you and you have the wrong idea. And I really don't want to uh, set an expectation that I can't meet or try to pretend that you can just start buying houses overnight. You're going to be a millionaire and your life's going to improve. That's not what this is for. This is similar to a 401k or a Roth IRA or a long-term investment. You buy real estate and you make sure whether you pay market value at the time that you purchase it or you get a slight discount on it or whatever, you're buying these things and you have to have a five to seven year mentality and five years at minimum. And let me explain to you, since 2017, let's say, when I started doing real estate full time and I'm doing you know 100 deals a year by my second year in 2018, 
those houses at the time, let's say, you know, houses today that were a hundred thousand at that time, they were 50,000 bucks. So the people who were dealing with me in 2017, 2018, I'm going to have a few of them on the show just so you can understand, you know, how this stuff evolves if you don't already have an understanding for it. So people back in 2017 were buying three bedroom houses in decent neighborhoods for me for about 50 or 55,000 bucks. And at the time the rent was like, 800 to 900 bucks and and the high amount was like 950 and it was hard to get a tenant at 950 and at 55,000 bucks you have a tenant at 850 and people were like hey this is a this is a good deal they're even paying 65,000 bucks for tenants at 6 at 850 that was still a good deal and the return was was pretty decent at that time and now here we are and it's 2024 and today in Detroit it's February 8th 2024 it's a, a balmy 59 degrees, shirts off weather in the city of Detroit. You know, people are walking around with, the, you know, white as Casper the ghost, chalky as ever, no lotion having people, right? And it's 59 and they got their shirt off and they're enjoying the sunlight because the first time we saw the sun for two consecutive days since I feel like it's been freaking November, right? So, you know, let's get into that for a second, how good it was to have the sun on my face for a little bit while I was trudging around the city, taking pictures of all these houses. Because today, like most days, I'm going out and I'm taking pictures of houses that, you know, people want to buy. And, and some of them need rehab. And some of them, you know, are, are people that got houses with non-paying tenants. And, and I got to you know, get my way in there to figure out how I'm going to get photos of it and then present it to someone that might want to buy it. And that's a whole different strategy. But, you know, every day I'm out there grinding them in the street and I'm looking back and I'm thinking, okay, who had success and who failed with me over the last, you know, five, six years? The people that had success with me over the last five, six years are the ones that listened to me when I told them, listen, you buy these properties and you cannot think about selling them for like five years at minimum. And if you do, you got to focus on making sure that your tenant doesn't leave. And the only way you're going to do that is if you provide them with a safe and clean and decent rental property and also make sure that they're certified. This way you avoid tickets and you know unex unexpected fines and all this BS that you have to go through with the city because the city of Detroit from an administrative you know perspective is a zero logic zone. And this is the same thing in a lot of different markets where the people in the city really need development. And the only way that they're going to get it is through investors that are like you guys and myself, because they have no ability to even budget money. In most cases, they're an embarrassment and they operate like crap. And anyone who operated a business like the cities and the counties do across this country would be out of business. But somehow they still remain and they still keep on making all this money and they keep raising taxes and they keep offering less and less. But I digress. We still have to be in it for ourselves and we have to do what we got to do to build our wealth over time. And this is where we're at and this is how we have to operate. So you're going to have to make sure that you have legal properties and that they're all legit with the municipality and they're inspected and, and doing all of those things. And this is just part of the game. And if you don't want to do that, this isn't for you because you're going to get tickets no matter where you go, unless you buy in a rural area you know, farmland, like there's areas in counties in Michigan, when you get up into the thumb and in Northern Michigan, they don't care what you do. You could put a, a shipping container and cut a hole for a door in there and put a fireplace and they'd let you rent that thing. Cause if it doesn't bother nobody, they don't care, you know, but when you're living in a, in a, in a non, well, actually when you're living in an urban 
you know, not a rural environment and you're trying to do this stuff, there's regulations and everybody's trying to make money off you, just like you're trying to make money for being an investor. And that's just part of the game. You can't be, you know, trying to cheat the system or you're never going to win this way ever. Where I'm going with this is, excuse me for that. Where I'm going with this is, you know, you have to be realistic about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Like, are you, do you have a 401k? Do you have an an IRA? If you do, are you contributing money into that? Do you check it all the time to see if it's going up or down? I bet you most of you don't. You put money in it and you're hoping that it's going to work out. And you're hoping at the age of 30 or 35 or even younger than that, you're going to put this money into it and it's going to grow over time. And all of the rule of seven crap that they they tell you is going to work and it's just going to compound. And you know, you're going to make this money. And when you get to the age of retirement, like 65 years old or whatever, you're going to finally have this money that you're then going to be taxed on, or you're not going to be taxed on, depending on the strategy that you decide to go with. And you're going to have this nest egg. Well, this this is the same thing that you're going to do with these rental properties. Like people who are successful, the ones that, you know, I started talking about, the ones that had the most success are the ones that bought properties one at a time. Then they got them ready to go or they bought them with a tenant and they stabilized them. And then, you know, they made sure that they were all legal and everything with the cities. And then they held them with the intention of not selling them. Like, not in a year, not in five years, like I'm going to hold on to this thing. And slowly but surely over a period of five years, the market doubled. It went up a hundred percent. So now that $50,000 house that, you know, you were looking at back in 2017, 2018 is a hundred grand or it's 90 grand. Right. And in the meantime, you've held that property for all that time. You've made rent on it every single month. You know, first the rent was 850 and then you raised it to 900 and then it became a thousand. And back then, 850 rent was good. And now, even a cash paying tenant is going to give you 1100. You go section eight, you're going to get 1300. Back in 2017, you were lucky if you could get nine, 900 bucks. So even though the prices have gone up, so has the cost of living, so has the rent, so has everything else. But the ones that won were the ones that were in it for the long haul, and they kept increasing the rent little by little, and they kept making sure that the house was compliant, that the tenant was comfortable, and that even if they got behind, they worked with them, and they made sure the tenant knew, hey, I want you as a tenant. I want to keep you. And if you get behind or you go through things in your life, I understand that. So as long as you write the ship and keep it right, like I want to keep you because it's cheaper guys to not evict tenants. It's cheaper to let someone pay you late every month. If they want to pay you on the 10th, fine. Let them include that $75 late fee that you're charging. If they're glad to pay it, you should be glad to accept it because I got news for you. If you're buying in a, in a D or a C minus class, these people are having a hard time paying their bills, right? They don't make a lot of money. And if they're on section eight, be realistic about how much money you're charging to get someone in your house. These property management companies want to charge, you know, first month's rent plus one and a half month security deposit plus an application fee. And they don't even want to sell, they don't even want to open the house up to show anybody the house until they pay $75 or $60 or whatever they're charging for this person to get approved for a house they haven't even seen. Then they wonder why they do a, a day with appointments and people don't show up. Or they wonder why people don't apply. Like, this is a business that requires work. You cannot sit back and hope that everything's going to go perfectly. And you also can't anticipate that somebody who is on Section 8, let's say, and they're only paying $100 of their rent, is going to be able to somehow come up with $2,000 to 2500 bucks in January of the year or February of the year. Be realistic about who you're renting to and what you're trying to do. 
And if you're realistic, you can formulate and you can make a little plan and you can start following that plan and you can start understanding what your expectations should be. That way, if you operate right and you have reserves on hand, you can afford to hold these properties and you can afford to wait a couple months for the right tenant and you can put them into a good house that's going to be stress-free. And you can understand that in the off season, when you need to put a tenant in your house, if they qualify, they don't really need to have $2,000. Maybe you let them move in for $500 bucks. Think about this. If a cash paying tenant's willing to pay you $1,000, but you can get $1,300 from a Section 8 tenant, 12 months, that's $3,600 in additional income that you're making because you chose to go with a Section 8 tenant. That more than covers any money that you thought you weren't getting in a security deposit. Or you could do the other way and you could hold on to the property for three, four, five months and lose, you know, $1,200, $1,300 a month plus holding costs. You got water bills and taxes and insurance and utility bills and all that. And then you're going to be the smart guy that held the property for five months for the right person because you didn't want to budge. Or you're going to let your property management company basically try to tell you like, I'm sorry, the market's just slow. And they never even suggest reality to you about, you know, that you should lower the move-in costs. And then you sit there and you lose seven, eight, nine thousand $9,000 because you're letting somebody else basically tell you what to do. And they're not even interested in your, in your best interests. And, and I have another secret for you. A lot of these property management companies, what they're doing now is they're saying, Hey, whether your house is occupied or it's vacant, you still owe me. So if the rent's $1,300, you owe us 10%. Or if it's 1000 you owe us 10%. But if the house goes vacant and you still want us to manage it, we're going to charge you a minimum cost of $75 a month. Now, imagine if a property management company has 700 or 1,000 doors. Let's say 1,000 doors. And they got 250 of those doors that are vacant. And they're pulling down $75 per door. And they don't even have to go over there and do nothing. That's the most profitable business they have. And sometimes, and I've had to fire a property management over a company over this because they admitted it's the easiest money they ever made, which made me believe that they weren't doing anything to try to get the houses rented because it was cheaper for them to just do nothing and collect free money. So you always have to be paying attention and you always have to be willing to say, hey, man, you're trying to play me for a fool and I'm not going to have that. And I work in unison with you when you call me up and you tell me about this stuff. I try to offer you a better solution or I get on the phone and I tell whoever it is that's trying to play you like this is going to stop or you're going to lose my business and you're going to lose my client's business. We're going to go with somebody else. We're going to go to somebody else who has these people's best interest in mind because we ain't got time for this because people that are coming to me or they're coming to people like me, they're coming to us and they're saying, Hey, I got money, but I don't exactly know how to do this. And I'm trusting that you will be able to guide me in the direction I need to go. And I'm hoping that you can put me with the referrals and the resources that I need in order to get there and maintain it long-term because all my clients, and I say this over and over again, I want you to be long-term. I don't want you to go anywhere else. I want you to buy through me. I want you to hold through me for a long time and use my vendors in which I make no money off of because of these situations I'm talking about. I don't want somebody to come and say, hey, you know, I I can't operate right because you're asking me to give you X amount of dollars off every dollar I make. I I take away all the excuses for them. So when I go to them and say my client's not happy and I'm not happy either, they have zero leverage, none. They have to just operate. And if they don't or they don't try to get better, then I find somebody else who's willing to do it. And then I lose that relationship and I go to someone because – 
I don't get to wake up every day and mail it in. And I don't get to wake up every day and, and tell people one thing. Then two days later, be like, I don't really feel like doing that now. So I'm just going to, you know, leverage your future when I feel like it and then not give two craps about it when I don't like, I don't get that option and neither do any vendor I deal with. And if it starts getting to that, then they're done and I'm done with them. And I'm very straight into the point. I have time, especially now the way that my life goes. And the way that this business has, you know, the place that this business had brought me, I don't have, I can't even lie. There's no way I would remember what I'm saying if I tell somebody a lie and then they come back to me three, four days later and say, hey, repeat to me what you said, or they start quizzing me. There's no way I could remember. I'd get caught all the time. And I like that. I like being in that position because I'd rather just be blunt and sometimes be a complete jerk about the way I respond. And sometimes you know, I'll be more sympathetic or whatever, but the case, whatever the case may be, you're going to get it from me the way that it needs to be. And a lot of people don't do that because I've said before, they're in a position where they're trying to talk people into making a, a deal so that they can make money because something in their personal life is motivating them to get a check. And you're the person that's, you know, in between them and not having to check and them having to check and they're going to ultimately tell you whatever they got to tell you in order for you to buy something so they can get paid and solve their problems financially. I don't have to be in that position, thank God, but that's going on and, and that's going on for property management companies. It's going on for individuals. It's going on for agents and you have to be conscious of that and you have to make sure that you're doing what you need to do. And the best way to do that is to be in a system and have a philosophy of how you're going to do things, why you're doing things and in what way you're going to do things in what order, right? And the most important thing that you can do, sorry, I have a little bit of a stuffy nose with this warm weather. It's like really, you know, messing with my sinuses. But when you have, when you're in a position where you can take your money that you've earned, your hard-earned money, because hardly anyone I know is just getting money for free, right? I mean, even people who win the lottery fail. So, you know, having free money doesn't say, you know, solve your problems either, either. So, but, you know, you have to have a system in place. You know, I don't want to sound like I'm rambling. I don't want to sound like I'm uh, upset. But, you know, lately I have a lot of people coming to me with these expectations. And this is all coming from these like TikTok, Facebook gurus, these YouTube videos or whatever. We're like, we could teach you how to buy real estate with no money. We can teach you how to have 100 rentals in the next five days with no money. Man, that's BS. All that's BS. This is a long-term solution. You take your money, you put it into properties, they appreciate over time. You make rental income. You make improvements when you make improvements when the improvements are needed or when the improvements aren't needed. If you feel like the neighborhood is changing, you have to always be willing to understand that that property is appreciating in value and it's exceeding appreciation, almost anything else that you're looking at. And if you're holding properties for like five years or 10 years, not only are you making the passive income that you thought you were, and if you can retain uh, the tenants and they don't move for, you know, three, four, five years, you actually are making money. But if you're providing a crappy house and people are turning over every single year, every dollar you thought you made is now gone. And every year you're breaking even, you're making nothing. So now you're only making appreciation. And even in that case, you're still making money. You're talking about a market, you know, Detroit or Metro Detroit, really. Look at anywhere else in the country, you know. In Detroit, you got houses for 60 to 90 grand and they're renting between a thousand and you know fourteen hundred dollars a month and in other markets you got rental properties like I just came back from Sarasota Florida for example while we were down there I noticed all these Airbnbs you know are available and, and they're so cheap and 
I, I met an agent down there. I started talking to him about it. And he's like, yeah, you know, everybody ran down here, bought all these Airbnbs. They thought they were going to make all this money. And so did everybody else. And now you have all these people with Airbnbs. They're trying to rent them. There's not enough, you know, need for them. So now it's driving the prices down. And, you know, you can get an Airbnb on the water for like 200 bucks a day. That's cheaper than a hotel. If you understand, like, the market and what you're doing, you can protect yourself from, you know, getting yourself in a bad situation. But you look at other, look at LA, you know, you think you're going to buy a rental property for less than, you know, 700,000? Show me one. That doesn't need any work. Go into, you know, New York, for example. And then if you have to go through eviction, you pretty much own that person for the next five years. Like they don't evict anybody, even if they don't pay you. It takes forever. Um, You go into a more liberal area like uh, California, you know, are they going to be tough on the tenants if they don't pay? That's hard to say. But I don't want to learn that the hard way. I'd rather buy, you know, houses for 70 to 80, 90 grand or whatever and know that, uh, you know, I'm getting a good return on my money and I know I can get multiple properties. I might be able to get 10 properties for $700,000 and get a, a return of, you know, 13 to 15% if I do it right. And I'm renting Section 8 or I'm renting to cash paying tenants. And I'm still in that, <clears throat> in, in that situation going to make sure that my properties are clean and safe and they, the tenants want to stay, and that they're legal, and I'm getting all the rental inspections and all that stuff, and I'm going to hold them with the mentality that I'm never going to sell them. So at the point when I do go to sell, someone is convincing me to sell, and then I'm going to sell it to them for what I believe is a fair price for me. And I'm going to make appreciation on my money. I'm going to make a lot of money versus what I paid. And I'm also going to make all the money that I made while I held it from the passive income. And if you're holding with the payment, and you have $300, $400 in passive income after you pay all your bills, if you can hold a tenant for, you know, five years or more, I mean, then you're really making money. And that does happen. And all these horror stories, like people, a guy today, he's he lives in Germany or whatever. He comes to me and he's like, what am I missing? There's all these horrible stories online, you know, uh, with different websites I'm not going to mention where people are saying there's all these horror stories about renting the Section 8 tenants and it's just a bad idea and this and that and the other thing. I'm like, bro, you're renting to D-class people. It's not a Section 8 issue. There's a lot of things that go into why you have horrible experiences with tenants, but it's not. you cannot say, well, Section 8 is horrible. I would never do that. I have cash-paying tenants. I've been the worst tenants of my entire life that had jobs, that qualified with pay stubs, and W-2s and all that. And I even called and got a reference from their former landlord. But when they moved in, something happened in their life where they decided that they weren't going to be real human beings anymore and they turned into savages and I had to deal with it. It just happens. But if you're holding long-term, you might take a short-term loss, but you're gaining equity. All these things are piggy banks. Every time that you make an improvement, you should have a financial ability to go into your own pocket Take your money and make those improvements and and be able to enjoy the passive income that you and know that you're, you know, realistically, the tenant is paying this stuff. But even if they're not, you still need to be able to do it yourself. So over time, it's like a snowball effect. You're throwing a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And pretty soon the piggy bank is full. Then you need two. Then you need three. Then you need four. And eventually it comes to the point where you have to make a decision. Is single family you know, going to be what I do or should I level up? Let me give you another little bit of advice. I buy single family houses. I own multifamilies and apartments. I've had all of it. And you think 
you know, with the multifamily, I think it's a better investment and, you know, there's more money to be generated. I get a higher return apartments. You know, I have all these units under one roof. Well, let's start with apartments. Apartment buildings have like an, an average of like 20% vacancy at all times. The units are small. They're not comfortable. And people don't live in apartments long-term most of the time. So they come in and they leave and they come in and they leave. And every time they do, you have to go in there. And even if you have the process down to a science, which I did, and you could flat white paint everything and you could change the carpet real cheap and you have an on-site manager or whatever, and you can turn a whole unit over for 1500 bucks. You're still losing 1500 bucks on the money you thought you made. And this is happening all the time. And you're never operating at 100% almost ever when you have apartments. And then when you need a roof, it's not a six or a $7,000 roof. It's like a $25,000 roof. Or in the apartment building I just put up for sale, vacant 10 unit, the guy just put a $60,000 roof in the house. It doesn't even have windows in it. Okay. So when you're going after multifamily, it may seem like a good idea, but you have to also think, you know, a duplex, a duplex, most of the time they're up and down. There's one driveway. If you have two tenants and they both have cars, where will they park? Are they going to go upstairs and knock on, you know, the guy's door upstairs to have him move his car if he parks behind him and they got to go to work in the morning? No, they're going to fight and they're going to cackle each other all the time and they're going to be all, you know, jerky. And if you put the wrong tenant in the main floor, let's say you put a, a 50, 60 year old woman in the main floor and then you put a 25 year old kid in the top floor and they're stomping around like they're going to be complaining and yelling and, and bitching at each other all the time and stuff and whatever. And it's going to be a headache. And then who's going to cut the lawn? Who's going to shovel the snow? In a single family home, you can make the tenant cut the lawn and shovel the snow. When you have a multifamily duplex or apartment building, like you got to pay someone to come and do that because who is going to be responsible for cutting the grass? It's going to be you. Who's going to be responsible for paying the water bill? There's one meter that services two units. Can you bill back the tenants and prorate? Yeah, you could, you know, but you're going to have to fight with the tenants all the time. And they're going to say, well, I have a three bedroom unit and they have a three bedroom unit, but I live here by myself and they got five kids or whatever. And they, they use more water than me. So I should have to split it. How do you split it up? So you're going to find yourself trying to avoid those conflicts and conversation because it's not worth it. These are the kind of things that happen with single family homes. You come to the end. Let's talk about the end. You have a single family home. You have a multifamily home. You have an apartment building. You want to sell them. How do you get the most money for what you have when you go to sell? Well, you get it from a retail customer. That's where you get it. So if you have a single family home and you turn it over and make it a flip essentially and you make it retail ready, you're going to get buyers faster and you're going to get buyers that close on them quicker and you're going to get buyers that want your house and they're willing to overbid for it if it's in the right neighborhood or whatever. You're going to have a bidding war. You could have highest and best. You could have multiple offers, whatever. Or you're going to have just generally more people that are looking to buy a single family home because that's what people buy, you know, and especially if it's between a hundred and, you know, $250,000 a sweet spot because the median income here doesn't afford people to buy houses more than $250,000 because they can't afford it. So you're going to buy a house and have it in a range where people are more likely to be looking, they're more likely to be buying, and they're going to have lower expectations than somebody who's going to be looking at three, 400 or a million or whatever it is. And you're going to be able to get in and out of that single family home faster than you are in a multifamily. And when you have a duplex, even if you fix it up and it's all certified and you have tenants in there, when you go to sell, a residential homeowner is not going to buy it. It's it's tenant occupied. You're going to have an investor. Is an investor going to pay a premium for something? In most cases, they're not. And you're not going to get as much money. 
And they're going to try to negotiate more because most investors are pretty savvy and their agents are too. And they're going to try to beat you up for five, 10, 15,000, whatever, because any dollar that they save is more money that they can put toward the return that they receive. And if it's an apartment building, it's a whole nightmare scenario. When you go to sell that, you got, you know, eight, 10, 20, 30 units, whatever, and you have to put out a pro forma and you have to put out a T12 and you have to show all of your operating expenses. And then you have to have all these people who are going to want to see your expenses. And they're all a bunch of tire kickers. And every now and then you get a good one. And then you have to hope that it's not like how it has been, where the interest rate for commercial financing has been so bad that people who even want to buy, they can't because the interest rate makes the deal not good no matter what. And then you're stuck with it. So if you have to sell, you can't exit and you're holding it and holding it. And then the more that you hold it, depending on how much desperation or how much, you know, how much you need to sell, you're more than likely willing to drop the price and eat 20, 30, $50,000 because you need to exit for whatever reason. Because when people exit, it's usually because they're throwing their hands up and they're done or they found something else that they feel like they can bounce into that, you know, they really, there's a time crunch there. And so that, you know, that distress, that level of distress causes you to like lower, you know, your price and your expectations and whatever. And sometimes you, you pull the ripcord before you really need to. And at the end of the day, if you ask me, single family homes are where it's at. And in order for you to, um, you know, operate and, and do well and be successful, I'm going to go back to the fundamentals. The fundamentals is you buy them right. You buy them in the right areas you make sure that you make them comfortable and that they're safe and that people would look at the photos and actually want to live there. And then you have to ask yourself, would I live here? If I had to, would I live here? If the answer to that is no, then you're not doing it right. And you're not going to have people that want to stay a long time. And you're going to have tenants that are combative and they're not going to like you very much. And if you have a property management company that's in between you and the tenant, you may not know how much that tenant doesn't like you. It's all very damaging if, if you don't know what you're doing. But at the end of the day, you're going to buy houses. You're going to try to buy them right. You're going to make sure that they're safe. You're going to make sure that you're putting tenants in that you qualify the right way. You're going to do the research and ask the questions and make sure that you're thinking about down the road in 10, 20, or 30 years, how many ways am I making money off this? And you'll find that if you do it right, there's a lot more than just passive income, and there's a lot more growth in everything that's related to real estate that you're going to cash in on long-term. You're not going to see it in a year. You're not going to see it in two years. It's just not going to be there. So if you're getting into it and you're not willing to hold this to the side, like you do with your 401k or your Roth IRA or whatever, you're in the wrong business and you have bad expectations and you're going to fail or you're going to regret it. And that's all I have to say. So I appreciate everybody, you know, listening in this is probably you know a 40 minute podcast i appreciate you guys tuning in listening hearing me out and uh, feel free to interact with me you can find me at uh, www.detroitbuyholdinvest.com you can find me on social media i appreciate you guys listening to me have a great day live from the city of detroit shinebox studios dave rabbi or clyde realty let's go